special edition episode of the Metal Movers podcast brought to you by Argus Media, a leading independent provider of energy and commodity pricing and news. Our new series, The Breakout, will focus on the North American steel market and bring listeners insights from our team of leading experts, as well as an in-depth interview with a notable industry participant. We are going to kick off today's episode with our senior steel editor, Rye Drusen, for a brief update on the latest developments in the U.S. market, followed by an interview with our special guest, Barry Zeckelman. But first, let's get down to business. Steelmakers seem to be struggling to get hot roll coil prices past $900 a ton, even losing ground this week. So, Rye, what are people saying when you're out there talking to them in the market about what's going on? Yeah, hey Mike, uh, good to, good to talk to you and very good question. So right now, what we are seeing out there is just a lack of momentum. Um, you know, weeks ago, the steelmakers across the U.S. attempted price increases, generally in the $50 short ton range, setting hot rolled minimums between $900 and $950 a short ton. And there was uh, some momentum behind that at the time. Uh, a number of people in the market thought that it was uh, potentially a little too early. They had expected price increases two to four weeks uh, later than they happened, which would actually be around now. Um, but the steelmakers, you know, did what they did, pushed the prices out, and rather than having widespread success, what seems to have happened is that um, they had some success in selling additional tons, but not at higher prices. So what appears to be happening in this moment is that lower prices are out there for big tons, like 5,000, 10,000 or more tons, um, but they are nowhere near the stated minimum prices that the steel makers are wanting. Uh, that is keeping a lot of buyers away from the spot market. Um, we also need to remember at the beginning of this year, a lot of service centers decided to reduce their contract commitments. And so they have lower thresholds to get to for their contract minimums as far as volumes go. So they're much more comfortable making sure that they meet these minimum requirements for their contracts rather than going to the spot market for potentially higher priced and already underwater uh, hot rolled coil or other spot products. And to shift gears a bit, we're also in the heart of earnings season. So I'm curious, Rye, have there been any notable developments from steelmakers as they release their second quarter earnings? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously all eyes were on Steel Dynamics, uh, who are one of the largest steelmakers in the United States. They have three large flat rolled steel mills, uh, the newest one being in Sinton, Texas. Uh, everyone will know that about three and a half weeks ago, they they announced to the industry that they had had an unplanned unplanned outage that started on the first of the month because of a issue with their caster shear. So a lot of people wanted to know what the status was with that. And what they said on the call, which was actually last week, was that the steel mill would be coming online in the coming days. What I've heard in the market is a kind of mixed responses on that. Some people saying that the mill has restarted, but to what degree is a big question. Other people unsure about whether or not the mill has actually started. The company themselves have not responded to our request for comment, um, but obviously Sinton sitting where it is in Texas has some bearing on the southern uh, uh, hot-rolled market and flat-rolled market, uh, which has created a bit of a premium this week where uh, southern hot-rolled pricing is actually about $10 
more than in the Midwest, where it seems like there's uh, quite a knife fight going on for for prices. When it comes to um, Cleveland Cliffs and Nucor, who came out today, um, Cliffs actually increased shipments, which has been their stated goal this whole year. Uh, they cited increased auto volumes, which uh, I'm actually working on some auto earnings as well. And I can tell you General Motors, you know, they've increased their second quarter sales volumes by 19 percent compared to the prior year. Uh, and in the first six months, they're up 18 percent, which is which is quite a number of additional vehicles being sold. Um and so that kind of drives some of that additional steel demand in uh, at companies like Cleveland Cliffs. Um, U.S. Steel comes out later this week. They're also pretty automotive heavy. We'll see what their volumes did. Um, and then Nucor uh, actually saw uh, volume declines. Um, they, they're keeping their utilization rates um, lower. They did increase a little bit, but they're still in about the mid-80s. And that's a company that usually operates uh, in the low to mid-90% utilization rate. So kind of some interesting stuff going on there with their production volumes. And I think after the uh, pandemic hearing that auto might finally start becoming back is probably music to a lot of people's ears after a uh, a prolonged kind of drought here. Those insights are greatly appreciated. I'd like to let our listeners know that if they're interested in receiving more in-depth news, pricing, and analysis from Argus, our latest product, Argus Global Steel, is now available as a one-stop shop for all their needs. Please use the link below of the page to request a free trial. And now we're going to move on to our interview with Zeckelman Industries CEO, Barry Zeckelman. I'd like to welcome our listeners to the breakout portion of our Metal Movers podcast, where we sit down with recognizable names and figures in the steel industry. Our inaugural episode of The Breakout, we're lucky to be joined by someone who almost certainly does not need an introduction. A man born in Windsor, Ontario, took over the family business at the age of 19, following the sudden sudden passing of his father. That business, Atlas Tube, eventually grew into the largest independent steel and pipe and tube manufacturer in North America, with sales of more than $5 billion. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by none other than Zeckelman Industries' own Barry Zeckelman. Welcome, Barry. Happy to have you here for the first ever break or first ever breakout of the Metals Movers podcast. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Hello, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's uh, I I think it's interesting. Let's start at the beginning of your steel career. At 19, you're thrown into running the family business alongside your brothers in 1986. At at that point in time, just kind of run run through what was going on. You know, what was going on with the business? What was going on in your head at, you know, 19 years old, kind of with a bunch of stuff going on, having to come in and start to to transform this company into what it is today. Yeah, I, I mean, it was, uh, you know, both both feet thrown into the fire. But, um, you know, the business was really struggling. I mean, it was uh, something my, my father wanted to get going and uh, had a tough time with it. his health, never really permitted him to really be that actively involved. So, you know, the business was losing money and and really on the verge of actually uh, declaring bankruptcy and, and and closing down. So, I mean, if, if it had been six or nine months later, I don't think the business would have been there. So, um, you know, we got in and, uh, and uh, you know, knew it was our father's dream and, um, and said, you know, took a look at what the options were. And, um, you know, against uh, all advice, really, uh, we decided to make a go of it and, um, you know, just started there. And learned, you know, tried to look at what was the biggest problem we had. And the biggest problem we had at the time was, you know, getting the machines running. 
and um, and then uh, and then selling the product. And uh, um, that's where we started. And it was literally hand to hand combat uh, uh, day by day and trying to figure out how we were going to bank the business and uh, and and pay the bills. So, you know, um, I mean, that's how I learned it. You know, I got my fingernails dirty along with my my brother and and, um, you know, lear- learned what to fix first and then and, and why it was breaking and how we could possibly fix it and keep the machine running and, you know, spit out a few thousand pounds of tubing. And, and when I say that, it was literally, you know, if, if you could run a truckload in a day, it was a good day. So if you're going through this this beginning process, I mean, you you come into a struggling business and we know where you're at today with it. But on the top of your head, were there some early successes, some wins that you guys were having that you thought to yourself, OK, this is this is going to be sustainable. This is something we want to keep doing. Um, is there anything you know at that beginning period that really sticks out in your mind? Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you that there was a, a, a success other than the gratification of of progressing, um, you, you know, uh, you know, er, literally every hour and every day that, hey, we're moving forward, not backwards. And there were always steps backwards, too. But but we were we seemed like we were winning more battles than than we were losing. And also, um, you know, a bit of a chip on our shoulder. Right. I mean, you know, every, everyone said you can't do it. And, you know, we were pretty stubborn guys, um, maybe sometimes too stubborn. Um, but pretty creative and um and we're fighters so you know I, I i think there was a lot of that involved too like we'll show you you know and um and we're proud and 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 we just wanted to make it happen and we had a great team you know i had i had a guy who was there who who started with my father joe ponick and he's since passed uh, uh many years ago who was w- without uh without him we would never be in business and uh, and a and a ragtag group of guys out in the plant who a few of whom are still with me today and um you know you know we just owe everything to those people and it was and it was fun I mean it's it's I didn't have anything else to do I wasn't going back to school and um and this was the main asset in the family you know portfolio if you will and um you know some of it was just you had to make it work so and we liked it we liked the challenge we liked fixing things we liked figuring out. Uh, uh, solutions and um, and it just it, it literally just went like that and and you know as we sold the truckload of tubing and got paid for it more than we paid for the seal and and the scrap um, you know we knew that if we reached a certain volume uh, we'd pass a hurdle that uh, then became profitable and just keep keep going like that and and you, you know I got to be honest with you Michael it's the same thing we do today I mean it's a trade a bit of a trader mentality and um, you know buy steel for X and sell tube for Y and make sure you don't spend more money than that, than that spread in the middle. That's it. And um, I mean, obviously it's a lot, lot more complicated than that today with the various products we do and what we do and things that we do and technologies we employ, because we use all of those to increase that spread um, and, um, and lower the, you know, lower the cost to increase that spread and gain the scale that we do and the sophistication that we have to, to buy right and and uh, and be great partners to our suppliers and be great uh, suppliers to our to our customers. So um, keep it simple, stupid. I guess is 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 what we we do. It seems like a, a very simple business plan when you lay it out like that. Um, so I mean, that's you start back, you know, in, in round eighty six, and then we kind of get through you know a twenty year period, and then we get into the 06 period. Um, 
where it seems like it's another big sort of substantial change in the business. You know, you take it from a small struggling business, you grow it up over those 20 years. And then can you kind of just walk walk us through from that 2006, 2011 period, you know, with the Carlisle Group and the JMC and, and how this all kind of came together? Yeah, I, I, I think the big step for us was uh, the big really changing year was 05, uh, 06. In, in 05, we, um, you know, we bought um, Maverick's um, uh, structural tube uh, uh, business and the book of business. And then we, we set out to, to build a plant along with we bought uh, copper, the assets of Copper Weld, which were owned by LTV. We bought the structural division and split that with uh, DeFasco, which is now ArcelorMittal DeFasco in Canada. They took the automotive and the drawn over mandrel business and we, we split it. We took structural and, um, you know, it was a it was a banner year for us. Big consolidation, loading up the plants, moved started moving assets to where we they would be better uh, deployed, i.e. Um, some of the Canadian assets down to Arkansas and uh, and then move that Maverick book of business there. And in that 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 time frame, you know, we got approached by Carlisle, who owned uh, uh, private equity, who owned J, uh, John Manili company, which was um Another pipe and tuber, but you know, not not one overlapping product. Very different than what we did, and um, and wanted to buy us. And um, um, at that point, my 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 brother had largely left the business, a little bit involved. My younger brother had his own business. I was running it, and you know, we were we were at such scale that it was like, well, where do we go next? And um, it was intriguing, uh, but I didn't want to sell. Um, because then I'd just be working for someone, which I didn't want to do. It just wasn't in my blood. Um, and they came up with a proposal to uh, merge the two businesses, cash us out a, a pretty good dividend, which we had never taken in the business for 20 years. We'd never taken a dividend out. Um, so, you know, we could put a little cash in our jeans, so to speak, and uh, it would secure my brother's future and certainly mine and give me the next challenge. And I could learn a lot from him. So we we did that deal. And um, I, I really, really learned a lot from them and the other businesses that we uh, merged with. Um, lots of excitement there. Great talent we gained. And um, and, and probably that's the, the, the best thing ever. I mean, we've got terrific, terrific uh, teammates. And, um, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, learned that other side of the business, put a lot of what, what we deployed and in uh, the Atlas side of the business over to there and learn from them as well that, you know, and so now we're one family and uh, really uh, started to get synergies out of it. And then we were, you know, of course, the 08, 07, 08 period hit commodity run ups, you know, huge profitability, um, lots of debt pay down. And um, Carlisle, as most private equity will do, you know, said, look, this is a great time to exit. And, uh, you know, they had a deal put together. A um, lot of suitors and uh, the winning bidder was NLMK and, um, you know, a pretty bittersweet moment. I mean, um, sweet in the fact that it was a you know pretty big acquisition price at the time and, and st- you know, still a big number today it was three point six billion. And, um, you know, um, uh, it would have been an end to an era, at least my era and, and the Zeckelman's era and my brother's. And uh, um, the deal, um, the deal ended up falling through with the financial crisis and while most people would say, "Wow, that's terrible. That's you know, you know, bad luck," uh, it was actually besides the you know the the birth of my children, um, probably the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Um, you know, I was really kind of wondering what the hell I was going to do, 
Um, this is all that I was, know how to. Uh, this is all I know how to do. That's going to be my follow-up question of, okay, yeah. if that deal hypothetical that deal goes through at 08. What what is Barry Zeckelman doing uh, in 2009 and beyond? But I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. So it was. So you know, I I was pretty you know you know kind of taken aback and um and and I you know it was very it it became very clear to me just how much I love this business and 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 the people that are in it the fun that we have the friendships I've built the relationships that we all have the lives we've changed and and they've changed ours and helped seeing them grow and and just the you know the um again the 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 um you know the the fun of achieving things when you 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 fix equipment you put in new equipment new technologies making them work uh you know all, all of that the tinkering if you will and um i i i i was um you know i didn't know what i was going to do and then it fell through and you know we we kind of kept the ship uh, uh running well did our did our job and put our nose to the grindstone and and in 010 uh carlisle said look you know we we got to start returning money to our LPs, even in these tough markets and financial crisis. And uh, the business is pretty stable right now. And, um, you know, we're looking at exiting. And before we do that, you've been a great partner. And we just want to know if maybe we offer it to you first. Would you be interested? And I, you know, I kind of smelled that coming. I had, you know, put all my ducks in a row uh, with our family to be able to buy it back. I I knew that I had a feeling the day would come and uh, we jumped at it. So we, we completed that transaction and uh, off we went. And, um, you know, I, I you know, I, I got to correct what I would say was a huge mistake um, in in the fact that I, I uh, put put ourselves in a position where someone else controlled our destiny. And uh, and that was the partnership with Carlisle. I'm not saying anything bad about Carlisle. They were terrific, um, but just not for me. Right. In the in the end, not for what I want to achieve in life. And and what I want our teammates um, and our company to achieve, and and, um, and now we're in that spot, so it's it's a great spot to be in. Yeah, and that kind of gets back. So you know, 2010, 2011 time period, and then 2016, you go from JMC Steel Group to what we now know as Zeckelman Industries. Yeah, I got. I mean, it sounds like you know, it's a very proud kind of moment for you, for the family, for you know, all your team members to have your your name behind behind the company. But I mean, can you talk us through that? 2016, you have the name change. 2017, you start to acquire you know Western Tube and yep. American Tube, expanding into different products, different markets. Um, so kind of just talk us through 2016 to to where we're at today. Yeah, I mean, look, J- J- JMC was short for John Manili Company. We wanted to get rid of that name because they were no longer involved. That was still with Carlisle. And then when it was, you know, when we bought it back, we're like, well, what the hell's JMC? I mean, it has nothing to do with us. So we uh, we just said, you know, we're not going to call it Atlas Tube. Uh, the brands have great names, um, you know, and, and great recognition. So uh, we said, look, this is us. I mean, when people think of this company, they they think of, of our family, so we're, why not put our name on it? We're we're proud of it, and that's what we did. And then, um, you know, acquiring uh, American and, and Western, two great companies from um, um, the ownership they had. They weren't really new products; they were just good geography and 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 good consolidation. And um, and that that worked out well. And then we then we looked at really taking that footprint that we have and really you know making it excellent. And that's where the focus has really been driven 
um, uh, you know, from from that time frame. We've always reinvested, but uh, you know, in the last five years, it'll be six years now. Um, you know, over uh, you know, in six years, a billion two of capex um, into you know just tremendous uh, tremendous automation, tremendous you know efficiency enhancement, uh, safety, speed, uh, product quality, physical footprint. Uh, organic growth, um, uh, depth and breadth of product, um, a lot of technology. I mean, you know, we're we're setting ourselves up for, you know, the, not the next two or three years, but for the next two or three decades. And um, um, you know, in, in in with with the footprint we currently have today, you know, in about the next three years, that that cycle will be done, and we'll be in a spot that's just so far ahead of everybody else, and and and. Um, uh, you know, in the industry, it's um, it puts us in a very, very good position to focus on some other things and um, and, uh, y- you know, use that platform to further grow the business, either through through acquisition, some organic or maybe uh, a lot of other uh, products that we're looking at, like like Z modular. Yeah, and I think I mean, it's when you have two steel markets here in 2018, 2021, um that i don't know i i mean you were around for for 08 you saw that did you ever think you would experience a market like 08 again let alone you know 2018 and 2021 back to back no but but you know look we didn't build this company to to operate in in extreme moments and do all we we built this thing for um yeah, longevity, right? I mean, when I first started out, you know, it was an old guy said to me, he said, Barry, there's there's seven bad years in this business and one good one, you know, and you you've got to you've got to understand that. And I I I really didn't like that that formula, that equation. I said, well, then I got to figure out how to make money in the seven bad years. I mean, if the one good one comes along, great, but I, I'm not waiting for that that you know, hey, rainmaker, and then uh, and then sit back and, and and bleed it off till the next one. So that's what we did. So you know, to say, could I ever see an 08 coming? No. Could I ever see a 2021, 20, 22 coming? No. Um, but you you, I'm prepared to I'm prepared to not only survive in those times, but prosper. Right. So um, and 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 also not get euphoric with it either. Right. Realize that those are anomalies and they're they're springboards to the next thing you're going to do and use those opportunities to to enhance yourself. I mean, and, and strengthen yourself and your platform and your teammates and, and prepare them, you know, prepare them for the next hunker down. But but in those opportunities, you know, I mean, what Warren Buffett say, be be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. Right. So. Um, you know, we 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 think a lot alike in, in, in that in that regard. I'm not comparing myself to Warren Buffett, please. But um, but you know, we just um, you know we we want to prepare for all all circumstances. That's all. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and that kind of to pivot away. So you you come into the steel industry uh, at 19, and we've heard it as a recurring thing. You know, not just in North America but all over of trying to get younger people involved in this industry it always seems to be a tough get i mean what at zeckelman are you guys doing to maybe try to incentivize to get some younger people into the plants or looking at management positions and that kind of stuff because i mean it's 
it's not really a secret. The steel industry tends to be a little bit of an older demographic. Um, but it does seem important to bring newer blood into the industry. Um, I think it's a fascinating one. I've been involved since right after I got out of college, you know, more on the sidelines, covering the markets and really kind of learning about the industry. But just can you talk to Spurs or anything particular, Zeckelman, that you guys are doing to to really try to bring in a younger, younger crowd, younger generation? Well, yeah, I, I mean, first off, you've got to, sh- you, you know, you've got to show your energy, right? I mean, you know, show that there is growth here, show that there is energy here, show that there is, you know, acceleration, show that we do care about more than just bending metal. I mean, you know, we care about the communities, we care about the environment, we care about what our product goes into and what our product creates, uh, be proud of what it does and, and how it, 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 it helps society achieve its goals and its dreams. And then provide an environment that is, you know, you know that surrounding that is that's exciting. I mean, you know, um, uh, we spend money on the, the 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 physical locations in terms of where people will be and what they're able to do there. The offices are, you know, beautiful. We've got a few more to go, and it provides a nice environment and it's energetic. Um, we certainly are out there with social media and events and and things that we do as a company, um, uh, community-wise, to gain recognition. And, um, and and put ourselves in front of those young people. We're in schools. We're in uh, we're in sports. We're in uh, a disaster relief to to show that we care. Uh, we're donating to to a lot of causes and things where youth are involved, so they see our name. Um, you know, we're certainly out there talking about it and talking about the company and how we change communities and 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 what we do so that they may be intrigued by it. We have internships pro- programs. I just spoke to um, our 25 interns um, about a week ago that just just started and talked to them about what we're trying to achieve and why we need them and want them and w- what they can do here and talk about the industry. I mean, you become a lifer here, right? I mean, great, great friendships, a great industry. People have, have achieved tremendous success and we tout those stories. Um, we talk about how we promote from within. We, you know, we talk about where careers have gone, not only in our company, but in in, in the people that we do business with, both on the on the supply side and 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 on the sales side. I mean, just remarkable stories in this industry of success and achievement. Um, you know, families, right? When I um when I do town halls and I'm I'm standing at a in front of a group of you know a, a couple hundred people and I see two and three generations sitting there, right? When you know, when a when a union electrician at our council plant has their son or daughter sitting beside them because they started to work there, I, I I mean, those are probably some of the proudest moments in, in in my career. When someone like that, who's been with our company for 25, 35, 40 years, and trusts us and recommends that their their children come work for us, I mean, what more what more of a of a um, endorsement do you need than that and um, and then we talk to them about telling their friends and showing their success and how you know how how they can have a great career look what their fathers and, and mothers did did for them by by working at this company and uh, and helping us achieve our dreams and uh, we just want to help them achieve theirs too so yeah we talk about it and be real about it and um, uh, we're out there we're out there pulling them in and showing them what we do and how cool it is I mean this is it is not a dirty old tube mill anymore. And, and and you walk through a steel mill today or walk through a service center today 
with the robotics they have, the 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 lasers they have, the, the plate cutting. I mean, I mean, all these things, automated material handling, AGVs. I mean, it's incredible. It's it's just so cool. I mean, if if that's what sparks you, you know, I mean, this is a place to be. And there's a you know, there's a lot of capital that has to be deployed. There's a lot of implementation that has to happen. And we need we need to, uh, and not only that, we're, you know, as an industry, we've got a long way to go on the IT side. And um, so that's just low hanging fruit and huge opportunities, you know, particularly for, for young people coming in that, you know, um, that that's what they're into. So it's it's just great. We just gotta make sure that we tell everyone about it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for my time in the industry, of you know 11 12 years i think when i first got in i was a little overwhelmed it's this big global industry there's so many players and all this but the longer you're in it the more relationships you build the more you realize how tight-knit it really is uh you know not just in the u.s but all of north america globally um and it is really you know an exciting industry to be a part of and I agree with you too. If you walk into a, a new steel mill or service center and you see all of the, you know, just the equipment, everything, the scale of it, um, I think, you know, in our roles as price reporters and covering the market, we can maybe tend to get a little jaded. You know, we're talking to people about what's the price of steel today, yeah. who bought, sold. But then when you see it in person, you realize just the logistics and everything that go behind you know, moving all this steel, whether it be domestically, internationally, um, it is just really an exciting industry to see and be a part of. Yeah, I, I mean, and look, people need to understand something, okay? Steel is not a commodity, all right? They, they need to stop that. I, I don't I don't ever want to hear people talk about steel as a commodity. It's not. And, uh, you know, it's not traded on an index. And everyone will say, well, there is an index. No, there really isn't, okay? That index is bullshit. All right, because if if that index was the price, then every single person in every transaction would happen at that number. And it doesn't. It does with gold. It does with zinc. It does with oil. All right. It does with wheat. It doesn't happen with steel, not hot rolled coil or not cold rolled coil. So that index is bullshit. So it is not a commodity. It is a highly valued, highly engineered product. That has unique characteristics and differences from whatever mill it comes from and the and the regions it comes from. Right. So, you know, depending on how much copper it has in it or how much uh, silicon it has in it, because then you can't galvanize it if it's too high to the width of the coils, to the PIWs of the coils, um, uh, to the to, you know, the regionality of it. It's all very different. And each mill and the billions of dollars they invest in it uh, separate you know, themselves from that. And, uh, uh, you know, this is a product that, you know, uh, a friend of mine, Jim Hoffman, who, who used to be the CEO of Reliance Steel, said it in, in the most eloquent way. Nobody, nobody wakes up wanting anything we sell. They don't want it. You know, they need it. People buy a piece of tube or a piece of plate or a piece of or a beam or a, a cold rolled sheet or an angle or a channel because they need it, not because they want it. And they're just going to sit it under their bed or put it in their garage. So uh, we we got to understand the value of our product and what it means. But 
but I will circle back as yep. you know, we are part of a price reporting agency here at yep. Argus. We do publish market assessments. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I agree with you that steel is a very, very product. You know, I think one of the quickest things I learned when I started covering market, trying to uh, price it or figure out you know, how to assess it. Um, you know, everybody at you know, producer side, it is not a commodity. It's an engineered product. Yep. But. From a price reporting agency standpoint, we yeah. do want to have established methodologies for the quality, and we're trying to get a repeatable market assessment based on that price. So we're not saying it's that's the price for everybody. We know, you know, you guys have I think it's 2.8 million tons of capacity, yep. and you're the largest hot roll buyer outside of you know automotive here I think in North America. So you're definitely going to have a better price, I would assume, on the steel that you buy versus, you know, a smaller mom and pop shop that maybe has a single location somewhere in Ohio yeah. or Michigan. Um, so I do, you know, I, I'm not going to say it's bullshit. We do, you know, try to stay within our methodology and our practices to get a assessment. No, it's, um, not, it's not it's not bullshit, but it's not a commodity. When, when I say it's, it, it, it's bullshit, you can't. You can't sit there and this is the price and, and then compare it globally to the price in China. Yeah, there's a different price in China. How'd they get there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, even in the U.S., I've always kind of said when we're doing this and trying to cover the market and, and look at pricing, um, you know, you have your different ways of doing it, whether it be that index where people are submitting data and you're you're looking at it, you're doing you know whatever formula you need and outliers are removed. Or you do it, you know, as we do it here at Argus, where it's more of a source data or survey based market. And I've always said, I mean, every every price that you get when you're talking to a buyer or a seller, there's always a story behind whatever that price is, whether it be, you know, a relationship based price, whether it be, you know, the size or the gauge that they're giving to the mill that maybe they can run better than another one. But I think it's. You know, there is a little bit of art to it. It's not just a science of spitting out a number and saying this oh, is the no, price no, no. today. I, 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 and nor, nor am I saying that. But 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 it is not. It it is it, you know when you look at that index, and I'm not saying it's your index, right? You're you're reporting what you hear and what you find, and there's a science behind it. And I and 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 by the way, I'm I'm not saying I don't pay attention to it and look at it, but it is not a commodity, okay? And 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 it just doesn't trade at at that level and that number. So so w- when you look around the world and look at that pricing, you have to look at what's behind that as well. I I mean, in theory, the U.S. is the lowest cost producer in the world. Okay, we have great iron ore, we have the lowest natural gas, we have very low electricity, we have very competitive transportation costs. The labor, if you look at at, at a mill, is 0.25 man hours per ton on flat rolled. Okay. So if you're paying someone $50 an hour, which is a hundred grand a year, you're talking about $16 a ton. It costs $80 a ton to ship it across the ocean. So how the hell is anybody com- going to compete with us? Even if they pay their labor a dollar a ton, that's a $15 difference. And you're, you're behind the eight ball by 80 bucks a ton in ocean freight. So the U.S is the lowest cost, most efficient producer in the world. We have every bit of ingredient to do that. And we have have the lowest cost to do that and the highest quality raw materials. So nobody else competes with us 
unless they want to sell it for break even or lose money or be subsidized. That's it. Plain and simple. I maybe never even thought of it just in terms of the man hours and even if it's a higher cost of labor versus, you know, if it's going to take you longer to produce it, but you're paying less. Um, but in general, I think everybody's trying to figure it out as we kind of look forward and we look at, you know, carbon neutral steel. You've got the steel makers out there with their their branded versions of their low carbon or carbon neutral steel, where obviously if it's EAF based, it's going to be relatively low carbon per ton produced anyways. But then, you know, you can do the carbon offsets um, to kind of get it to that zero level. But from your types of customers that you're selling into, I mean, where does this sit in today and wh- where do you expect it to kind of go in, you know, 5, 10, 15 years time? Because everybody's talking about it, but it, it still feels like it's, you know, really early phases of trying to figure out this concept. Well, A, I think that we're all going to have to get globally more efficient and effective at at neutralizing carbon in the in the product itself. Okay, and you're going to do that by um, a mix and match of EAF, how you generate the electricity for that EAF, where that comes from. You're going to look at what carbon uh, uh, based fuels you use if you're using natural gas can you use hydrogen how did you generate the hydrogen what did that cost how much does it cost and there's a cost to it okay there is a cost to being environmentally um um cautious and environmentally uh, uh careful and um if we if we all want to do that then we're all going to have to pay a bit more to do that that's okay i mean that's fine if you look at the cost of steel in any one finished product, it's really almost de minimis, right? I mean, I mean, in the cost of a car, it's not that big. I mean, it's there, but it's not that big. I mean, if you look at our tubing that goes into a building or our electrical conduit that goes into into an electrical package in a building, yeah, there's dollars there, but it's not that big. So if you were paying $100, $150, $200 a ton more for steel, you're not going to move the needle in the end the 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 finished product in the end i mean is it dollars yes but if you want to achieve um a cleaner greener uh end game then you got to pay it now having said that if we're going to do that here we have to hold the rest accountable they have to do it as well it's not indiana warming or sinton texas or osceola arkansas warming it's global warming and global CO2 emissions. So if you want to ship steel or steel products, the 70 million tons of indirect steel imports that come into the U.S. every year, I want to know where it came from. I want to know how you produced it. And I want to hold you accountable to the same standards that we're being asked to be held accountable and what we're doing to do our part in protecting the environment. So if your refrigerator is coming over from China and it was produced with steel that is, you know, six and seven times dirtier than the clean steel produced here, I'm going to taxi on it. All right. And don't give me a, a, a crap carbon certificate that you made up. All right. We have to figure out what those carbon offsets are or where you got them and are they real? 
and what they're paid, how you paid for them or how you generated them. So uh, until we can verify that, pay the tax, man. Okay. And that's, I was going to say, I mean, too, because we've seen it in Europe with the carbon border adjustment mechanisms that are kind of getting rolled out. But have we had conversations in the U.S. of doing this? Because, you know, not really. Not, and not that's, really. yeah. Can, can, Sorry. Sorry, I was going to just say briefly, too, because we I've talked about this with a few other people, too. If, you know, the U.S. is slow to the game or Canada um, is slower to the game than Europe with this kind of stuff, you have to think that all the imports that were going into Europe that now are going to be higher priced that are effectively going to act as a tariff with carbon border adjustment. I mean, they're going to go elsewhere in the world. We, you yeah. know, the international trade doesn't stop. It just kind of shifts to different homes. You so got, if the got, U.S. is yeah. slow, I mean, we we do run the risk of you yeah. know, those ending up on our shore. Yeah, that's right. So we got to move now. Yeah. Right. And you got to move fast and, and you got to be decisive about it and 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 make it happen. And, oh, you know, and just for the record, we've got a we just passed the budget here in the U.S. OK, and there's a massive deficit. So there's two ways to make that up. OK, only two. Increase revenue and decrease spending. Okay, that's it. So it's become pretty damn clear that they can't decrease spending. So how are you going to increase revenue? You're not going to do it with taxes. That's bullshit. And and the more you try and do it with taxes, the less revenue you're going to get in the future because you're going to kill business and kill the gener- revenue generating item. Largely, the biggest portion of which are payroll taxes. So if you want to get more money, employ more people, create more business here and collect more taxes. So last I checked, the people that are making pipe in Oman and in the UAE and in Thailand that are shipping it here, screwing up my business and my competitors' business, aren't paying U.S. taxes. I pay U.S. taxes. So if you want to take more of my tax dollars, let me produce more tubing and employ more people and increase the revenue generation here that will then help you cover that deficit. Let's get real about it and let's make sure that we're making it here in the cleanest way possible, taking care of society, paying great wages, and we're covering our bills. That's what I had to do in 1986. It was a pretty simple equation, and it's a very simple equation today. So I suggest to all of them, they go take a look at my little notebook on math and figure it out and start what we did in 1986, and maybe they'll get there. But it's not that hard. Just wake up. It's yeah. You've laid out a a simple business plan and, uh, you know, some simple solutions here. Um, Barry, I, I appreciate the time. I know you've got kind of hard out coming up here shortly. Yeah. Um, so I just want to say thank you again here for for stopping by, taking the time here to kind of run us through the history uh, of Zeckelman Industries and, and kind of where we're at and some of the bigger topics that we're looking at uh, in the North American and global steel markets today. Yeah, my pleasure. I think you can tell I like talking about it. So. <laughs> It's, I mean, like I said, it is a great industry. It's it's an exciting industry to be a part of. And I think you mentioned it. it if you're in it, you're kind of in it for life at this point. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I am. I'm not going anywhere. So it's all good. <laughs> Fair enough. 
Well, thank you again, Barry. I really appreciate the time. And this will conclude then the breakout for the Metal Movers podcast. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Thanks uh, for all you do for for the steel community and the education that's out there, the information you provide everyone. It's a it's a it's a great great outfit. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate the kind words. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, take care.